Hey, it's Zoe. Just a quick announcement before we get started today. For the rest of the month of March, I'll be on a brief hiatus, returning with new episodes of the Full Bloom podcast in April. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you would, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcast. I'm Zoe Bisbing, and this is the Full Bloom Podcast, where we're nurturing a more embodied and inclusive next generation. When adults respond quickly and consistently to bullying behavior, it makes a difference. Research shows this can actually stop bullying behavior over time, and we can even help prevent bullying by talking about it, building a safe environment, and creating community-wide bullying prevention strategies. But let's be real for a minute. There is also a limit to what us grown-ups can do. It's painful to acknowledge, and I feel it both as a parent and a therapist who holds space for a lot of folks' pain. Bullying is real. Weight-based bullying is the most prevalent form. It's happening everywhere. And when we aren't around to intervene, it's brutal. It looks like being made fun of or being called names, getting comments about your looks, getting harassing calls or emails or texts, receiving verbal threats, having rumors spread about you, being excluded from activities, being ignored, being humiliated in public, being pushed, tripped, or elbowed, being physically assaulted, being spit on, having property stolen or damaged, having mean things written about you, having jokes made about you, being gossiped about, being told you can't be someone's friend, having mean things posted about you online, having mean things written in comments about your pictures on social media. Brutal. But For those young people who sustain such injuries, there's emerging treatments specially designed for them. I learned about this from Dr. Janet Lidecker, a psychologist from Yale's Teen Power Program, who, through research and practice, is taking a stance against weight bias, reminding kids that being bullied is never their fault is never okay, is never deserved, and, if treated, does not have to leave a lifelong scar. It's a heavy topic, but I promise it's a hopeful conversation. We've talked about weight-based bullying on the show, and Jessica Saunders talked a lot about teachers' lack of preparedness to manage it, which I'm eager to talk to you about here. But What I think is so great about your participation here is you could tell us a little bit more maybe about what this evolving treatment could look like and what you're discovering in this research trial that I know you have going. Because sometimes we do a good job of identifying the problem, but not a whole lot talking about possible solutions. And so I hope that this conversation can encompass a little bit of what do they need and what does help actually look like? I appreciated that you referenced the trauma because I think that that's an often overlooked trauma 
It is. And there's actually some contention around whether to consider bullying a trauma. And I would say it doesn't have to be. If we look at strict definitions of what trauma is and associated with PTSD, about one-third to two-thirds of kids who are bullied will have some kind of PTSD. So there are some who are bullied and don't deserve to be and shouldn't be, but don't have some of those consequences where their whole world changes and they have extreme anxiety because of the bullying. But for those who do, that seems to be the path down which all of the other mental health consequences come, the depression and the self-harm and the eating disorders, the school absenteeism, all of the different consequences of bullying. What we've done, and I would say parents and teachers could do the same, it really is when that just stress starts coming up, when you see kids' behaviors changing or their mood changing, which is hard when it's teenagers and it's changing anyway. When you see those changes and you no longer recognize your kid, that's when there's a problem and treatment is helpful. Well, since we're there, let's talk a little bit more about the treatment of bullying that you're studying right now. It's actually very helpful to hear you even give numbers. I mean, so it's one third to two thirds of kids don't experience the in a trauma response or is that what you said? PTSD. Yeah. PTSD, which of course doesn't mean that the kids that do experience bullying that don't experience PTSD aren't significantly injured and like carry those sort of emotional scars with them over the course of their lives. But that is an interesting differentiation. Could you tell us a little bit about what types of weight-based bullying we're talking about? Like when we imagine the type of kid that might benefit from some of the supports that you are going to talk to us about in a little bit, like what have they come in with? What are they enduring? We've really seen a whole bunch of different types of bullying because with weight-based bullying or any bullying, one of the hallmarks is that it happens over and over. So it's repeated. It's usually multiple bullies, multiple perpetrators, and it can be over a prolonged period. So because this is one of the first studies, we're very open. So we wanted to take anyone who wanted help with weight-based bullying, basically, So we've seen a decent amount of cyberbullying, so things posted online, mean comments, sometimes directed at the individual, sometimes just posted on their their page or their wall. We've seen lots of teasing. Usually peers at school is what parents and teens are referring for treatment. But then we do hear about teens being hurt by things that family members have said, too, whether or not the parents actually intended it that way. Again, because bullying is a multiple person thing, it tends to build on each other. We've also heard about some kinds of physical bullying where it seems like once a child is identified as a victim of bullying or an easy target, um, it doesn't matter why they're being bullied. They're just in that, um, that target role. So we've had a few kids who have changed school districts and then come to us to say, well, you know, I'm doing much better, but I still think about it. I'm still afraid of these comments that my kids in my old school did and I don't want it to happen again. And so I'm thinking about crash dieting or I'm thinking about restricting and the parent gets concerned, gets alarmed, or even the the child themselves will say, but I don't want to do that. I just want to feel better about my body. And then they'll come to us. Yeah. So all sorts of very mean things are done to 
kids. And it's like, it's just so heartbreaking. I was just listening to, I don't know if you listened to Maintenance Phase, the podcast. Highly recommend. But they were talking about fat camps and just the, (laughs) one of the hosts referred to them as shame factories. And just the amount of trauma that's inflicted upon, I mean, that's a whole separate episode that I suppose we could do as well. But it's really such a vulnerable population. Are the majority of kids that are coming in genuinely in larger bodies? I mean, I suppose you could be bullied, you know, someone could say something pejorative about the size of your body, even if you're not particularly a fat person or a fat kid. But what are you seeing there? So we intentionally kept it broad so that any kind of weight-based bullying would be accepted. So we've had a couple who have come through for being bullied, for not having the right proportions or for being too small, but the great majority are in larger bodies and typically have had other forms of trauma, have had eating disorders at some point and are, are highly sensitized to this bullying which that was a little bit of what I referenced before with some of the surprises that have come from the studies. So we did start at the very beginning of COVID. So that Mm -hmm. threw a big wrench and everything, particularly with remote schooling. So it it does seem like in-person bullying went down substantially during, during COVID. We don't know what happened this year, but when kids were remote schooling, And cyberbullying seems to have stayed at about the same, maybe a little bit higher, but not the explosion that a lot of us were worried about. And Mm. so the first year in particular that we did this study, we were getting very, very severe kids um, who had a lot of trauma symptoms, a lot of comorbidities. And we think that those were the, the families who were reaching out for help at that time because it wasn't it was still severe enough, even if it wasn't happening this week or this month, that they wanted help for it. Um, now we're getting more who have more proximal bullying experiences, but it's it's definitely been a learning experience. And we have a very small number still, but it's looking like treating weight bullying um, as a trauma and working through some of those cognitions is treating eating disorder behaviors too. So not just preventing, and of course, we don't know yet about how long it will prevent eating disorders from coming. I want to hear more about that. But before we do, can you flesh out a little bit for us when you say trauma symptoms, what those are? Because it's possible people listening, you know, don't know what that means. Absolutely. So we think of the traditional trauma symptoms that a, a veteran or someone who's been abused might experience. So things like avoiding anything that reminds you of what happened. So if a child was bullied in the cafeteria, they might not want to go in the cafeteria or to that table anymore if they were bullied in in a particular hallway or in front of their locker, they might start carrying all of their books. So that kind of avoidance, but also cognitive avoidance. So trying not to think about being bullied, trying not to remember it, trying not to associate with any people who remind them of it, positive or negative. And then we do have arousal symptoms. So people who startle easily, people who um, who jump at any noise or who are always expecting something negative to happen to them. And then we have 
some of the mood changes and cognitive changes that can come with trauma. So just that shift in world of view. So with bullying, what that looks like is not trusting that anyone will ever see you as an attractive person or will ever see you as a worthwhile person. Um, some of that internalized weight bias, but then also not trusting the world um, and not, not believing in the good in, in people because you've experienced so much negative. Yeah. I think about adult patients that I've had the privilege to work with who have had some of these traumatic experiences in their youth and weren't able to access teen power, you know, 20 years ago and carry those injured parts with them that really do keep them protected, right? So those, whether it's like avoiding dating or avoiding even having like super high defenses up in therapy, right? Being kind of defended against any kind of cognitive behavioral (laughs) intervention, right? Like, because there is uh, such a strong part of them that has learned, like, I must protect you by keeping my expectations profoundly low and uh, myself as protected as possible in order to survive. So those wounds go so deep when not attended to. And I I guess now you're going to tell us a little bit about the main tenants and interventions that you're administering right now to kids that really need it. Absolutely. We certainly see the same thing in our adults as well as our teen eating disorder patients who have had experiences with bullying. Just some of those shoulds that come out of, well, I I know you're going to tell me that I should lose weight, so I'm going to say it before you even get a chance, even though, of course, we'd never say that. But we hear a lot of the, well, I know if I, I, if I would just lose weight, then the bullying would stop. So they'll say that before we can even do it. And we actually hear that a good amount from parents, too. And that, again, has been something we've learned throughout this trial that, one, parents want to help, two, that the problem of bullying is often underestimated. So it's seen to be something more simple and less severe than it actually Mm -hmm. is. And so the solutions are seen to be the simple ones too. And then that it's hard to admit that needing therapy for bullying is possible, that it's a thing. And, And it's not often something that parents or schools will consider. Um, mm-hmm. And part, yeah. part of that is because we need better treatment so that healthcare providers feel equipped to give the treatment. Yeah, but I think this is what we were talking about on that episode with Jessica Saunders. This, like, her study had something to do with increasing awareness of even like internalized weight bias. But that the, the tragedy is that we're we're immune to registering this as like something terrible just happened. Something equivalent to someone cut somebody just happened because that person has a has a wound that and they're bleeding, but no one can see it. And we're literally like, oh, yeah, you know, bullying. <laughs> and uh, even with comments that are not overt bullying, but certainly like weight based teasing, or even if one child overhears another two kids saying, oh, I feel so fat. This is also injurious. And so I I just agree with you. Like we don't necessarily think to connect 
bullying or teasing, you know, someone that's been the victim of those things to like an actual treatment because we need a lot of rewiring to start noticing this as like a big problem, you know, a big offense, right? Well, I like the word offense because it's not the person's fault who was bullied, but this is such a shame-based action that I think what we're seeing is kids saying, I don't deserve treatment and parents saying, if I were just a better parent, then my kid wouldn't have been bullied. So we don't deserve to go get treatment. And it's this internalized bias. And it's also shame of, if only I had been different, this wouldn't have happened. Therefore, it's my fault. And that's absolutely not true. No one deserves to be treated that way. There's nothing anyone could do that would make them deserve to be bullied or teased or to overhear comments that cuts at who they are as a person. Um, so right. again, I like that word offense because it is it is an offense. It's the problem of the person who's doing the bullying. It is. And I think the extra layer, and this maybe could be another research endeavor for you down the line, but person that has committed the offense, I'm doing air quotes, right, has injured without necessarily realizing that what they've done is so injurious. Like, right. All I did was say you're fat, but what you've done is, is it's almost like you didn't realize you were holding a gun or something like, or that the gun was loaded. I don't know what the best analogy is, but there's something going on there where there's not enough awareness on the part of the aggressors to even take full accountability because they don't realize the gravity. They don't realize the, I think grownups don't realize the gravity of this. And so why would kids? They absolutely don't. And I think that is the difference between bullying and maybe weight stigma more broadly, because bullying is an intentional action. But we do, we hear about all sorts of weight discrimination in the context of our patients who have been bullied. We hear about doctors who kind of dismiss weight and give these, frankly, unrealistic and uh, just inappropriate recommendations like locking all the cabinets or taking away all the food. And we just look at it and we go, where is this coming from? I know that's not published in any <laughs> standard of care, but it, it, it's weight discrimination, it's weight bias, and those have such harm and yet are unintended and often actually intended for good, to help, just misdirected. Okay. So regardless of why somebody's been injured, whether it's because of bullying or some of this more weight stigma related stuff, they, they come in and then what's your goal for them? I know you started talking about this with treating kind of trauma symptoms, but what is your goal for these young people? And then how do you help them realize those goals? What's the therapeutic approach? So the goal is for the bullying to not have control over them. So to not have control over the teenager's thoughts or feelings or actions like it does at the beginning of, of when they come to us. So the therapy that we do is based on trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, which has been used for years and years and years with all sorts of traumas a very well-established therapy, but has never been tested or used officially for bullying. And so it's minimally adapted. But what we do is we start by giving coping skills at the beginning. It, it eases 
the teens into the therapy and gives them some some skills that they can rely on to cope with any strong thoughts or emotions because we don't want them turning to the eating disorder behaviors or other maladaptive forms of coping. We want to empower them to choose other coping skills. And then we go through what other trauma therapies call an exposure exercise. TFCBT calls it a narrative, so we call it the bullying narrative. And our teens make a story of what they've experienced. So they start with the first time they were bullied, they do any significant events that they remember. Um, If there are a lot of them, we'll usually do the first, the worst, and then the most recent. Um, And then they talk about the circumstances, what was going on, who was doing the bullying, what was said. And then over the next few sessions, we'll go through the details of that. And by going over it and not avoiding it, We can also challenge some of the thoughts that are um, potentially, again, maladaptive or self-blaming or not trusting things that kids would normally trust, and then some of the strong emotions and think through other alternatives. So by the end, what we're hoping is that the bullying is just something that happened and something that the teen can talk about with a trusted adult, so we have them share it with their parent at the very end, but that isn't as strong as how it was at the beginning. It doesn't trigger them to have strong emotions or to be jumpy or or anything like that. So what we've seen, like I mentioned before, is some of the, the disordered eating behaviors go down over the course of therapy. We do also encourage the teens to do a a positive health behavior throughout. And some of them will work on eating, some will work on sleep, some will work on screen time. We help them based on what they've talked about. We encourage them to do a health behavior as they go along with the narrative. Again, for that, that empowerment and that feeling of, I can do good things for my health. Yeah. And for the kids that come in or the parents that come in that you reference that, and I'm, I'm thinking about this because this fat camp episode was just listening to these horror stories of what parents, uninformed parents can say, again, all to try to help their children. Something like, I just need to help them lose weight. This is my fault because I let them get fat. And that's why, like, conceptualizing the problem as it's their size that's the problem. I think what's refreshing about what you're saying, and I trust you as an ethical professional, that you're not at all saying that, that you are saying the problem is what happened to you and that your goal is to help them process the trauma, process the negative event so that they can relate to it differently. So how do you speak to parents and kids if they come in and they really do think, because I'm sure this must happen, or they really do think, my body is the problem. I think I just need to change that. Are you going to help me change that? I'm assuming that happens. Yes, it does. So we also have a a binge eating therapy for teens. And so we get this actually in both, in both programs. So we're very clear at the first session that we're not a weight loss program. And so if parents or if teens are looking for a weight loss solution, we're not it. We're not expecting to see weight loss. We'd actually be surprised if it did happen because the therapies aren't associated with weight loss. And so we have had a couple of families choose to go elsewhere because of that. Mm -hmm. But usually when we talk about 
And we don't think that losing weight would solve your problem anyway. And some of what I say is what I started by saying, where once a child is identified as a victim, the bullying is not going to stop just if you lose weight. Uh, You'll still continue to be bullied, but probably or potentially for a different reason, maybe not even for a different reason. So it's much more powerful in the child's life to have a strong relationship with their parent, to have self-confidence, positive body esteem, rather than to change their body. But it's a tough conversation, and it's a tough choice for parents to, to make. We do, when needed and when wanted by the parents, we do have the option of parent-only sessions in addition to what the child receives, where we talk about how to communicate, how to reinforce good things that the child does, some of the the parenting skills that traditional TFCBT would do, which can be helpful. Yeah, I think what you're saying is parents are not to be forgotten here. You know, when your kid, I mean, the kid is the identified patient and the the victim, let's be clear, it's not the parent, but as a parent myself, I know that you feel so deeply for your child and in so many ways, their pain is your pain. And I could imagine some parents really need a lot of support separate from their kid to make sure there's enough space to even be able to say, I'm struggling with the shape and size of my kid, like those things that that bully said to them, I think those things. And I try not to say them because I know, you know, that deep anti-fat bias lives in all of us. And and I hear you. I think you make a good point to remember that weight-based bullying is different from weight stigma, which is, all you know, both, it's not to minimize the pain that causes, but I think the intention, it's very important. I don't think we do a good enough job of distinguishing those two. So, but parents really struggle with this, just. Yeah, and they are two different experiences, but I think you're right too that weight stigma colors how the parent views the bullying experience that their child went through. And so if the parent's thinking, oh, I hate that my child is hurting, and the bully's not entirely wrong, that's a very different response from, I hate that my child is hurting and that was totally off base. And so um, we do create some space to have the parent prepared to hear the narrative at the end of treatment, which means knowing how they'll respond to what the child reports the bully said in their in their story. So their reactions, their own personal beliefs and struggles with weight bias, all of that. Yeah. And what do you hope that parents will say to their kids as they share the narrative? Like, what's the optimal reaction you get from a parent? It varies so much family to family. I actually, I love the parents who we've had the, the chance to work with. They do such an amazing job of praising, praising the new child who they see in front of them, the one who has worked through the bullying and uh, parents can validate that it was a hurtful thing that the bully said or did. And they're so proud of their child for the new way that they've chosen to think about that and not letting it be who they are anymore. Yeah. In the treatment that you're talking about, I didn't hear you mention self-compassion, but I feel like I've seen self-compassion flitting about in some of your work. Is there anything you want to say about self-compassion and how this 
may promote more effective coping and outcomes for individuals? Yeah, so we do a lot of acceptance, even though it's it's CBT, it's not acceptance-based therapy. We do a lot of um, sitting with painful emotions and um, thoughts to some extent rather than trying to avoid them and push them away. And I think that in and of itself requires self-compassion. We see so many teens who are well beyond their years in terms of how much they're beating themselves up. It's typically what we would see in our adult patients who have had a lifetime of, of experiencing weight stigma and messages that they are not as they should be in their body. Um, and yet teens, even teens who have had recent weight gain, will just be so hard on themselves. We encourage a lot of self-care, a lot of acceptance of, of who they are, focus on identity and health and what they're doing well, not just all these things that they're um, wishing they could change. We had a conversation a couple seasons ago about self-compassion and how the high capacity for self-compassion or high self-compassion is almost more important than high self-esteem. And I found that to be really almost surprising. But then when you really think about it, it's so obvious. And that we generally are not so good at self-compassion, <laughs> it seems. But I do find that even in my own practice, that helping people build a self-compassion practice seems, even just anecdotally, correlated with some pretty decent improvements in quality of life and well-being. Absolutely. And again, this is why I love working with teenagers. When we have teenagers with eating disorders, they're often really wonderful human beings. They're so compassionate and helpful towards others. It can really be mind-blowing to have them focus some of that compassion on themselves and to mm -hmm. switch and see themselves as worthy of, of the care that they would give to others because they are constantly helping others and, and doing nice things for them and yet turning right around and beating themselves up. So it can be a really profound shift to transfer yeah. those skills that they already have. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. If you're a deeply feeling person, you have quite amazing natural empathy for others and right to harness it back towards yourself. It can take a while, but so, I mean, on Mindful Time, we didn't get to talk much about BED, um, so maybe you'll come back and talk to me about that. But I wonder if, you know, that, that first question, I think just because we talk a lot on the show about weight stigma and have had a handful of guests that have talked about the inherent stigma baked into words like obesity and the medicalization of fatness as being honestly, as being somewhat traumatic for some people that were not given compassionate, kind care by doctors that maybe put them on diets and things of this sort. But I wonder just if we think about the acronym for power, just how you think about that. Because I know weight stigma is of deep concern to you. And, uh, you know, th this word obesity, it's, I think it's sort of controversial. And just respectfully, I wanted to hear a little bit about how you how you understand that and reconcile that with the work you do. Absolutely. And it certainly is something that we talk about 
being at this intersection of the eating disorder scholarly field and obesity scholarly field is it's a hard question for me with this patient population because, uh, well, because of some of the internalized bias that comes through, as well as the past experiences, as well as just the effects of, of labeling. So we've done actually a number of papers on what terms patients prefer. So we give them a list of terms. We weren't the first people to do this, um, but we were, I believe, the first to do it with binge eating disorder patients. And we asked them, well, if your doctor is going to come in and talk to you about weight, what terms would you prefer that they use? And what we got in all of our studies and what other people have had in their studies is that the most preferred term is weight. So just simply talking about weight, so not giving it a term like higher weight or unhealthy weight or higher BMI, anything that could have a judgment surrounding it, Mm -hmm. but also not using, at least in our patients, not using the word fatness or excess fat or other terms like that. Those were actually at at the bottom of the list for our patients. And obesity was in the middle. So some people hated Mm. it. Some people preferred it. None of these terms were well-liked. I should say that. So the liked ones were still neutral. They were right down the middle. No one really wanted to talk about weight. So in practice, what I try to do is use the term larger body or higher weight. There are some problems with that. They're relative terms. So people will say, well, higher or larger compared to what? What's the standard Mm -hmm. there? And that is a problem. So what do you... What do you call the, the BMI range of 18.5 to 24.9? Is it healthy weight? Well, mm-hmm. any weight could be healthy. Is it normal weight? Well, that's not where mm-hmm. most people fall. So what, what do you call it? And it's the same thing with the relative terms. But obesity does evoke a very strong reaction, and it has a specific definition in the medical field, and so we don't want to overuse it by any means. But sometimes it is helpful. I do, personally, as a clinician, I stay away from the word fat because when patients have used the word, um, applying it to themselves, I tend to hear some self-criticism in the way that they're using it. Again, these are treatment-seeking patients. They're coming to me for an eating disorder, and so they are by no means the general population. But for that reason, I don't want to unintentionally collude with weight stigma or internalized bias. And so I stay away from the word fat. I do respect and admire the fat activists who do, who are attempting to take that word back from the pejorative meaning. But I think some people still use it to hurt themselves. And others. And others, for sure. (laughs) For sure. The other point I wanted to make that I don't think gets talked about much is that obesity as a medical term has been traumatizing in part because it's used as a proxy, as a risk factor for all sorts of medical conditions, as opposed to looking at other factors that might actually indicate risk. So obesity is said to be a risk factor for for example, cardiovascular disease, whereas it would be more accurate to look at closer 
risk factors rather than just the correlation of obesity with those other risk factors. And I think that does produce trauma and it, it clouds the system. It, it's an easy out. You can take a height and a weight much more easily than you can draw blood or run a test. But it is a, I think that's a problem that we aren't quite ready to figure out as a field. Obesity is entrenched in the medical system and yeah. is continuing to harm some patients. Um, we still hear every week, we hear stories about, well, this yeah. is what my doctor said. This is what my pediatrician said in a way that really sticks with, with patients in a negative way. It makes them not go back. So they don't want to go back to their primary care. Right. And I know from uh, Kendra and Sonnenville shared this study with us about just self-perception and weight perception and kids in larger bodies, whatever word we're going to use to describe their shape, they were in larger bodies. And the group in that study that was told nothing about their weight, just like, see you next year, well check, versus, you know, you're in the obese category, the overweight category, that I think that what flowed was a, a difference in health behaviors. So this self-concept, you know, this takeaway I had from her was it's, it's better just to think of yourself as a healthy person because self-concept of being a healthy person, you take care of yourself. It kind of fuels your self-concept that you're a healthy person. You keep taking care of yourself. And I mean, I, I'm, it's a hard sell for me that there's any good that comes out of these words, you know, obesity, but I'm with you in that it's, it's just so entrenched. It's almost like a structural project that nobody seems to have an answer for. Like, how do you just eradicate this word? Maybe we'll, we'll see in the next <laughs> few decades, but, but. And is it the word that's the problem or is it something deeper? And I think it, if we mm-hmm. did eradicate the word obesity, we would, we would still have problems, but it is really tough. We're working on a similar study. At least it sounds like a similar study with a Adults and who chooses to label themselves as having obesity versus not, and what that means for eating disorder symptoms. Oh. We're still analyzing, but it seems to follow the same lines where adults who matched for BMI, so same size body, those who choose to take on the label of, of being obese have greater eating disorder symptoms symptomatology than those who don't. And that's not surprising. And yet it is really surprising that just that label would do it. Yeah. And that labels, names, they're meaningful. And I think what you're saying about asking people what they want, you know, like you said, you're not the first group to look at that, but I think that even putting fat on the list like letting people choose. And I'm a big believer in trying to do whatever I can and encourage other nurturers to destigmatize the word fat, never to use it without permission from somebody. I'm with you. Um, The word is too loaded, even if I'm idealistic and especially if we're not, I mean, it's complicated because then if you're in a fat body, it's one thing. And if you're not to use, I mean, it's complicated this word, but I do think that the more we can use it in ways that are not about somebody, but more, you know, like right now on Instagram, I have a whole thing going with people. I guess they, they're women that are just playing around with how they could use it. Like to say, oh, I have fat on my body or I have fat on my belly. And 
to sort of how can you use, and I try to do it with my kids too, just to sort of find ways that are not presuming that someone else would be comfortable with me saying this about them, but to find ways to use the word in non-stigmatizing ways as a neutral descriptor, just to sort of plant a seed that maybe it's possible, but it's a huge project. And, uh, that's cool. I like that. That seems like a nice first step for those of us who are uncomfortable using the word too, is thinking about it, not jumping to fat as an identity word. So fat person, for example, but thinking about using it as a neutral descriptor that might ease me in. Mm. Yeah. Well, I will send you my little uh, script that I came up with a while ago for clever ways to try to destigmatize it. Cause it's like, we have to be creative about how we do it, but I think it, I certainly think the world would be better off if we could move away from it being such a pejorative, you know, especially since it is a descriptor, you know, just like short or blonde, fat, tall. Thank you for listening to the Full Bloom Podcast. For more body positive nurturing content and conversation, you can find me on Instagram at Full Bloom Project. Special thanks to Davis Lloyd, Christina Regal, and all of you who helped support the Full Bloom Project by rating, reviewing, and sharing these episodes. See you next time. Thank you.